Good morning again. I don't know about you, I'm thrown off by the time. I feel like I'm supposed to be ending my sermon in five minutes. That might be to your advantage this morning. Uh, I trust you enjoyed your extra half hour if you are a typical first service attendee. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 27. If you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab one in front of you under the chairs, and you can find Psalm 27 on page 393. We're in the middle of our summer sermon series on the book of Psalms, and out of 150 of these songs, a good number of them have a a theme that we might find repetitive. David's on the run. His enemies are after him. He wonders where God is in the midst of his trying circumstances, and he comes to his senses and affirms that God is good. He has never left David, and he's okay. And with our instant on uh, social media attention spans that are so limited, we might typically find ourselves reading yet another psalm that sounds like this and getting bored and looking for something more stimulating, something more unique, something more relevant to where I am. I need, I need more, you might think, when I'm reading through the psalms. But isn't this the story of your life? You finally resolve that dispute with the credit card company, and then the insurance company won't pay your hospital bill. You fix your boiler, and then your fridge goes. You, you get through a, a difficult conflict, and then your grandma passes away. You finally get on vacation that you desperately need, and you get sick on the second day. The Psalms, maybe, are a lot more relevant than we'd think to life that David describes today in this psalm in verse 5 that constantly seems like it is the day of trouble. Where do we go? How do we cry out? The psalms give us the vocabulary of faith. The psalms meet us where we are. The psalms help us to express through divinely inspired song things that sometimes our hearts are just too weary to even express. Let's read Psalm 27. Listen carefully. These are God's words. Of David, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord... This is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord." Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. 
Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would be given grace and strength by your spirit to wait for you, to trust you in perfect timing and perfect provision and your perfect wisdom. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. If I very briefly outline this psalm, I'd start this way. David makes these statements of affirmation, verses 1 through 3, and then he tells us the main thing he seeks from God, verse 4. It's the heart of the psalm, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. But then starting in verse 7, he seems to grow anxious, starts worrying, expressing fear. Verse 9, for example, don't hide your face from me, don't turn your servant away, don't reject me or forsake me. Some of you heard that from your little ones when you dropped them off in nursery uh, just now. Don't leave me. And then David gets a grip on himself, takes a deep breath, and expresses confidence once again in God. Is he bipolar or is he the divinely inspired poet? Is he ADD, going from one topic to the next before you even realize he's changed the subject? Or is this an insightful example of real life captured in song? We're going to start by looking at something that can get you sent to the funny farm if you do it too much. David talks to himself a whole lot, telling yourself a story. Uh, David Sarwer is a psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also the uh, head of the Center for Weight and Eating Disorders. And he utilizes self-talk with his patients. That one of the first things he does is uh, when they come in to see him, he stands them in front of a mirror, the last thing they want to do. Uh, these are folks struggling with weight and eating disorders. And he coaches them to use less negative, less destructive, gentler language to describe themselves. The goal is to internally remodel how people perceive themselves, to, to better align their distorted self-images with what is closer to reality. Well, what's a distorted self-image? Here's an example. Uh, back in 2013, a study in the Netherlands uh, involved researchers asking women with anorexia to simply walk through a doorway. And what they found was the vast majority of these women, despite their two slender frames, actually turned sideways to fit through the doorway. Striking. They had plenty of room on both sides. They were not even close to being overweight, but when they walked through a doorway, they turned sideways as if to fit, you know, the gut or, or the hips through. They were convinced, these women, they were convinced that their bodies were bigger than they actually were distorted self-image. Al Franken, Saturday Night Live comedian turned U.S. Senator, isn't America great? You can crack jokes and get into Congress. Um, Al actually attended Alcoholics Anonymous for years, and 
draw, drew on that experience in crafting his character, Stuart Smalley. Daily affirmations with Stuart. Stuart, a fictional character, uh, was a troubled man, insecure from a dysfunctional family, and he would fall back on these daily affirmations to give himself strength, to, um, to, to build up confidence and to comfort himself with this self-talk. And if you remember the skit, dressed in his nice little cardigan, uh, he would sit in front of the mirror and, and look at himself and say, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. It was daily affirmations with Stuart Smalley. If self-talk helps you to realize that your too skinny body is not overweight, that's good. It's healthy self-talk. But if self-talk just makes you feel better for a while in denial of reality in an escapist fashion, well, it's only good for a comedy skit. It's not going to help anyone, um, at least in a lasting way. Self-talk is important. It can be dangerous if it's uh, trying to deceive oneself. Um, So what message of self-talk might we call helpful? Well, God leads us to practice a a particular kind of self-talk that we'll call preaching the gospel to yourself every day. That self-talk doesn't escape or deny reality. That that self-talk isn't like having a 600-pound person... um, convince themselves that they're actually healthy. It's denial. It's not true. Uh, Or a terminally ill patient that uh, they're going to be just fine. It's not true, barring a miracle. It's more like uh, healthy self-talk is more like the anorexic women in the study uh, speaking to themselves to correct a distorted self-image that is not true, that needs to better align with reality. Gospel self-talk actually treats the scary and ugly reality of life more honestly than we otherwise would. And at the same time, it says that what you dream about isn't even close to what you can have. It faces the negative head on, and it elevates the positive beyond what you could imagine. Here's the message of gospel self-talk in a nutshell. You are more sinful than you would ever care to admit, but... If you place all your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are more loved than you ever dared to dream. You're more sinful than you you would ever care to admit. So it faces honest reality head on. It doesn't sweep it under the rug. It doesn't um, uh, flee into escapisms. And if you believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, you are more loved than you could ever dare to dream. It elevates the positive. If if you're already a follower of Christ by faith, then preaching the gospel to yourself involves seeing more honestly and deeply the extent of your particular sin in your life. And it involves resting more fully in the truth that you're perfectly loved, that you're promised greatest joy in the presence of God, all because Jesus took your place on that cross. Preaching the gospel to yourself involves affirming what is most true despite the contrary circumstances that would scream, not okay, dying, suffering, need to escape, which almost always feel more real because they're material and physical and temporal. Well, what self-talk does David engage in 
first six verses are, are very positive and, and faith-filled. The Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Um, basically, he's saying, why should I fear? God is with me. My enemies will stumble. Even in war, I will be confident. In the day of trouble, he will keep me safe. He will hide me. My head will be exalted above my enemies, despite some dire circumstances, some of which we know from the, the books of First and Second Samuel, some of which we uh, can piece together from other psalms that give us more details. David's circumstances are ugly. They're scary. And despite them, he's engaging in this gospel self-talk, affirming things that are more true. Paul the Apostle writes in the New Testament to the church in Rome, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then elsewhere, he says in 2 Corinthians 10, take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. What Paul's getting at here is there is a war, a battle of the mind, which influences the um, emotions of the heart and the decisions of the will. Self-talk conditions the mind by exposing it to what is most true. If you don't preach the gospel to yourself, the gospel being that truest of all stories of God's rescuing, redeeming work through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, if you don't preach the gospel to yourself on a daily basis, then you will end up telling alternate stories to yourself. It's not a question of whether you do, it's a question of which alternate story you choose. Author and, um, and counselor Paul Tripp is fond of saying, no one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. Whether or not it's audible, whether, whether any of your friends would think that you're kind of funny and odd, or, or if you're just thinking these things to yourself, you are the most influential person in your life because of self-talk because you choose a narrative uh, that ends up defining um, the way you interpret reality. The narrative you choose influences how you react to every circumstance, what your attitudes are on a regular basis. You fit your life experience into some storyline to make sense of everything around you. Maybe your mind is ruled by the Hollywood narrative which is all about beauty and status and fame and fortune and other people's approval. And though you no, you're no Hollywood starlet or Hollywood uh, Tom Cruise, that's the narrative you tell yourself. Or, or, or maybe your narrative is the self-absorbed, woe is me because I am a victim story. And that's the lens through which all of your relationships are filtered. You know, when people don't do things the way I want, you pout. And you point the fingers, that because the narrative is conditioning the way you think of everything. Whatever it is, any alternate story makes your troubles worse than they actually are. Um, it, it makes your troubles the centerpiece of your life. And of course, two flows right into number three, which is um, relief from your troubles is what you make your life all about. I have to solve this problem by getting rid of my troubles. And you apply Deuteronomy 6 in a backwards way to your troubles. Deuteronomy 6 is a, a, uh, has a passage that exhorts parents to preach the Word of God to their children constantly, 
always, let me paraphrase the anti-Deuteronomy 6, okay? All these people who just don't get it, who refuse to recognize your perfect wisdom and all these circumstances that so unfairly happen to you are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children, roommates, friend, mother, anyone who will listen to you kvetch even as they roll their eyes at you in secret. Talk about them, your troubles, when you sit on the bus, when you jog at the park, when you lie down and when you get up. Talk about them when you post snarky, sarcastic, pity-me comments on social media. Write it on your hands, tattoo it on your neck. Take some sidewalk chalk and tell your neighbor, neighbors all your trouble and write it with a soap bar on your car windows so everyone knows it as you drive around town. That's what we tend to do. We apply Deuteronomy 6, and instead of the narrative of God's Word, which positively shapes us, which affirms things that are most true, we choose alternate storylines, and our troubles magnify. They multiply exponentially. All of that kvetching does no good, but marinates you in uh, the soup of your troubles unless you preach the gospel to yourself. Your alternate story says, my life stinks because of other people. I deserve better, and I'm going to make it happen at whatever cost. My circumstances define me. I didn't do that to myself. They limit me. They determine my happiness. I need a better body, a better job, a better spouse, a better home, a better whatever. What does the gospel say in great contrast? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? God has already given us everything. What else does the gospel say? Isaiah 53 uh, um, talks about the suffering servant um, who, who went to his death like a lamb um, before the slaughter, suffering for our sins. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows. We worship a God who knows fully the extent of any of our suffering, who does not call you to endure anything that he himself has not already endured and conquered. What else does the gospel say? This life is not the end. It is but a breath in eternity. The grass withers and the flowers fall. All men are like grass, but the word of our God stands forever. These are the things that we need to marinate in, preach to ourselves on the daily basis to counter the, the message of the world, to, to affirm what is more true about our lives than our circumstances right in front of us. These gospel truths that I put up in these three slides are, are just nice sayings that will have no impact on your head, your heart, or your will unless you come to very consciously realize on a daily basis that they are superior to every other narrative you're tempted to tell your, your life story uh, based on. They, they're just nice sayings that have no impact, these gospel truths, unless you take the time to, to read Scripture, to mine these pages for all of the nuggets of the gospel and affirm them back to yourself in gospel self-talk and meditate on that. And, and, and apply it to your sin and share it with others um, in conversation or as a teacher or, or in a growth group. 
These gospel truths will seem pie in the sky unless you remind yourself that the circumstances that scream for attention in your life do not have the last word, are not ultimate, can all be redeemed. Why? Because God, who is your light and your salvation and your stronghold, will redeem that trouble, will heal its effects, will banish it one day and leave only peace and love and beauty. That's where we go secondly, considering beauty. Because in the midst of his faith-filled self-talk, verses 1 through 6, David describes in verse 4 his singular desire to be in the presence of the Lord, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. You know, David is likely on the run again in some um, ugly situation, people after his life, taking his kingdom away from him, um, those who were friends betraying him. Whatever his circumstances might be at this point in time, basically he's saying, all I want, God, is to be in church. We might think, is David denying reality? Is he daydreaming spiritually? Is he um, missing a few marbles? Because singing songs, reading the Bible, pretending everything's okay, isn't that the caricature of what the world thinks of Christians at? You know, not addressing head-on the stuff of life. Uh, coming here into a sanctuary and pretending it's all okay, putting on pretty faces, not talking about real struggles with each other, and then going back to real life where and when we might not seem like we're that different from everybody else. It's not what David's doing here. He wants to be in God's presence in order that he might see true beauty. What's true beauty? If it's creation's glory we would argue over where, this place or that, the beach or the mountains, the city. If we're talking about a person, everyone has their opinion, not worth arguing about. Same with art or music, very subjective, what you find beautiful versus what I find beautiful. Well, what if we asked why? Why is beauty heart-stopping, attention-grabbing, breathtaking, poetry inspiring, probably the same kind of subjective dynamics, right? Just getting underneath the, the thing or the person that is beautiful. But we could then talk about what beauty is not. And there I think we'd find a lot of common ground. What is beauty not? Beauty is not evil. Beauty is not greed, abuse, gossip, discord. Beauty is not pornography pollution, pedophilia. Beauty is not divorce, orphans, unwanted babies, injustice, human trafficking. I think on the vast majority of those, we could easily say that's not subjective. That's true. Beauty is not any of those. So what is true beauty? What it's not has helped us. True beauty is everything that God is. True beauty captures um, every perfection in God's character, His goodness and glory and compassion and grace and mercy. It is all satisfying, all fulfilling, without which nothing. Beauty. 
everything that God is. There's a profound difference between the merely religious person and one who is enraptured by the beauty of God. Because the, 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 it's the difference between wanting what God can give you or do for you and simply wanting God Himself because He is all-surpassing beauty and glory. He is everything. If you want what God can give you or do for you, what you're actually saying is that that thing or that situation is more beautiful than God. And God is a means to that end. God is a secondary good that can give you your primary supreme good. But um, if we want God Himself and the beauty that He is, we trust that we seek first His kingdom and all these things will be added unto us. If we want something from God uh, or want God to do something, um, this is what David's poem in the Bible would have been like. One thing I ask, this is what I seek, for all my enemies to be instantly vaporized. Then I can worship you in your house, O Lord. And don't those fit our tendencies, our prayers, our attitudes? You know, God, once I I deal with these things, then, then I can serve you. Then I can make it on Sunday. I got too many things to do. I have to. I, I'm. I'm packing. I'm. I'm. I'm fixing. I'm. I'm solving. Uh, and and once those things are out of the way, then I'll have time for you, God. What we're saying is those things are second. Uh, are, are primary beauties, and God is secondary. Unless God can help us. So maybe we have a sick relative, and 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 we we start doing things for God. We start praying because we see God as a means to the end again. That is primary beauty, what my heart longs for, what my heart is enraptured by. If I don't have it, life is not less worth living, and God is a means to the end. If that were David's desire, his singular desire, that would mean freedom and victory and physical security and comfort are more beautiful to David than God. And you listen to that list and you think, well, are those things really that bad? (laughs) Life, survival, freedom, physical security, they're not. They're good things, but when we make them ultimate, like we talked about last Sunday, they become idols, they become supreme beauties, and they take the place of God. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. Aiming at heaven, in Lewis's phraseology, means singularly focusing on and desiring more of the beauty and glory of God. Aim at heaven, and you get earth thrown in. All the lesser things will be added to you. You will not lack. You will not um, need. And um, He will provide everything that you need, including your life. That is real life lasting life, not always limited in our minds to 40 more years or however many more years you need or want in this fallen world. There is no beauty in God if there is death which comes from sin. God resolves the problem of death in His beauty through resurrection. And that's when our time horizons need to shift from now to all of eternity and trust that God will bring it about. David, David assumes that stuff will happen to him. 
Um, he says, when evil men advance against me, verse 2, when my enemies and my foes attack me, though an army besiege me, verse 3. And then in verse 5, he talks about, in the day of trouble, God will keep me safe. Josh started our summer psalm series with two weeks on Psalm 23, where David says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies, a banquet table, a feast. Why are they here, God? (laughs) In the presence of my enemies. Trouble, God's promise is not to remove us from trouble or remove trouble from us, but to strengthen us and to redeem the trouble. His beauty is most glorious not merely the resolution of all of our little troubles, whatever we would define with that word. He will not abandon us in the day of trouble. That's what David knows. How can we know that? Because in the day of trouble, the greatest trouble that has ever afflicted any human being on the face of the earth in all time, though uh, God the Father did abandon God the Son on the cross of Calvary. That was Jesus' day of trouble, and the Father did not deliver him. Why? Though he had done no wrong, though Jesus was the perfectly righteous son, in order to make good on his promise to David and to every other follower of God throughout time, Jesus was forsaken so that in him we might be, quote, kept safe hidden in the shelter, verse 5, exalted above the enemies who surround me, verse 6, which include our ultimate enemies of sin and death. Jesus was abandoned so that we might not be. Jesus was forsaken so that we might be brought near to God in trouble. The way of life through the pursuit of God's beauty is not about requiring us to be strong, to swallow hard, for example, at a cancer diagnosis, and then resolve with all we've got to beat it. That's good. You want to do that if you get such troubling news, but it's not enough. David shows us the better way. Uh, For example, in verses 7 through 14, he engages in self-talk. He affirms what is most true. He affirms his relationship with the Lord. He's never apart from God in his trouble. He goes to God with his trouble, and he reminds himself of what is most ultimate by gazing upon God's beauty, his goodness, his power, his saving promises. And then he ends with this message, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Why? Because He who is most strong, who is almighty, who already dealt death its death blow on the cross of His Son Jesus, He is coming again to finish what He began, and He will reveal to you, if you trust in Him, the glory and beauty of perfect life which only exists in His presence. Let's pray toward that end. Lord, You are most beautiful. You are and You have everything that our hearts long for, but we're deceived. We are so easily led astray by lesser treasures, by lesser beauties, by uh, ugly things that would masquerade as beauty. And it's not difficult to 
draw up a long list of examples. Show us through the clarity of your word, through the indwelling power of your Holy Spirit, that you alone are most beautiful, most glorious, most to be desired. And when we have you in a relationship of faith through Jesus, we have everything. We give you thanks for your generous goodness and grace. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.